Hey, welcome to night school. And I'll just get right into it. No need for an introduction. You know, something that's going on right now, it's very big, and it's not new, but it does seem to be amplified, is vote signaling. The need to encourage people to vote, and then also to broadcast it when you do vote. And I believe that's always been a thing. I mean, I've seen vintage buttons that say, I voted. I know that in my adult life, there have always been the stickers. When you vote, you're given a sticker. It's a participation sticker. It acknowledges that you participated, and you can show people that you participated in the democratic process. And in the internet world, you know, as long as social media has been a thing, I've seen where people post pictures of that. They'll post pictures of their I, of their I voted sticker. They want to let you know. Not only did they participate, not only did they know they voted, but they want you to know they voted. So I would call it vote signaling. It's on one hand emphasizing the importance of voting, which I'll, I'll just say, you know, whether you're one of these people who believes that voting doesn't matter, that it's all fixed behind the scenes and, and the vote is just there as this sort of illusion to satisfy people, whether you believe that or not, or whether you believe that your vote truly matters, that your vote is truly what's going to tip the scale toward the candidate of your preference, you know, whether you believe one or the other, one extreme or the other, I think a lot of people are in between. Uh, I think a lot of people exist in between where it's like they, they know their vote isn't that important but they don't dismiss it entirely. They don't think it's totally meaningless either. I think a lot of people exist in between. Uh, but, uh, you know, with that, with that idea of voting being totally meaningless, even then, it's still important in the sense that people want to feel like they're participating. And I think that that's more important to people than even their candidate winning. It's sort of like when a dog, like if you've ever been working on a project with people and your dog or someone's dog comes up and gets in your business because dogs are so social because they're such a, a part of the group, part of the pack, the dog will come and get in your business. And of course, they're not helping. It's like, oh, that dog, he's not bringing any lumber over here. He's not, he's not carrying stuff. He's not hammering this nail. You know, but even then, the dog wants to feel like, He's involved and someone will say, oh, you're helping, you're helping. Someone will pat the dog on the head and say, oh, you're helping. And it's kind of a funny human joke. He thinks he's helping. But in the dog's mind, he wants to be involved. He wants to participate. And, uh, you know, even if you see voting that way, where it's just sort of a little pat on the head for the citizens to say, oh, yeah, you're participating, you're helping, you're helping. Even if you see it that way, that's still important. That's still psychologically important, and things don't have to be that way. I mean, while some dictatorships, you know, operate on this illusion of democracy, you know, things could really just be under a king, and there's no illu like there's no illusion that peasants have any voice in the process. Hey, buddy, you're helping. You're helping. You're letting me know people are outside. Hey, Batty, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Hey, come here. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, it's like we don't, we don't have to have that. But at some point in time, whether it's an illusion or not, whether it's a trick or not, whether people actually, whether their vote actually impacts anything doesn't really matter. It's still important that people even believe they're participating. Because that's, it's like I, I always say, you know, a lot of what people want is acknowledgement. And giving someone the right to vote is acknowledging their voice in some way, even if it has no meaningful impact. It's acknowledging their voice. And then on top of that, giving them a little sticker that they can show to other people is giving them acknowledgement. You know, they can show that to other people and then be acknowledged by them. And other people will pat them on the heads because you see that when people broadcast the fact that they voted, when they take photos of themselves going to the ballot box, when they post photos, you know, you see this thing on social media now where you can change the frame of your picture on Facebook, for example, to say vote. 
And, you know, I don't know. It's I'm obviously my my natural impulse is to be completely averse to that. But I don't want to be. I don't want to mock it too much. I don't want to mock that entirely. I know that I'm comparing it to the way a dog will get in your business and you have to kind of pat him on the head and say, you're helping, you're helping. You know, I know I'm comparing it to that, but I have a high opinion of dogs. So it's, I don't, I don't feel like I'm lowering human beings to some, you know, I don't, I don't feel that I'm, you know, mocking human beings because psychologically it's important that people feel like they're participating in events that matter because so often we feel entirely powerless when it comes to larger events but there is this vote signaling, and I, I do just have a natural aversion to that uh, because, uh, you know, it's one of those things where the people who say vote, these people who make it, their their life kind of revolves around that. They they kind of have this, it's part of their identity, you know, obviously. They're the, the person who tells everyone to vote. But with those people... If you were to tell them, well, guess what? I'm voting for Donald Trumpsfeld, not Joe Biden. You know, if you were to tell them that, they might be really upset and not want you to vote. It's almost like the, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention sort of thing, where what they mean by that is if you're not angry about the things I'm angry about, you're not paying attention. But if it turns out you're angry about something that is opposite of what I'm angry about, you shouldn't be angry. You know, because you'll always find things to be angry about. Every second of every day, every situation, everything you ever do in life, there is always something you could be angry about. And so, yeah, while that statement, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, that's true. It's, it's way more true than those people saying that even realize. Because you could actually get angry about everything. Even situations, especially situations that you willingly listen to. You see that a lot. Now that podcasts are so popular, so many people listen to podcasts. If you go to... If you go to the comments section of podcasts, you'll see these people. They, they will willingly listen to three hours of Joe Rogan's podcast every week, multiple times a week, and just hate it. They'll get so mad. Oh, he says the same thing over and over again. He's saying the same thing. You know, they get so mad that this guy who puts out nine hours of conversations for free every week repeats himself or says things just off the top of his head, makes dumb comments. You know, and somebody could easily do that with this show. There's a lot that somebody could get angry about, and I know because I get angry about a lot of what I say on here. You know, I get angry at myself, or I could get angry at myself. Uh, so it's, it's sort of that idea, and it's but it's like if you were to say to that person who's like, you need to be angry about this. If you were to say to them, I'm angry, but I'm angry about something else that you think I shouldn't be angry about, they'd be like, oh, well, you're you're overreacting. So... It's sort of the same thing with voting, where when someone says, everybody needs to vote. Have you voted? Have you voted? Have you voted, man? You know, when someone says that to you, when someone kind of takes on that identity, because it very much is an identity, the civic, the civic person who wants everybody to participate in the democratic process, it's often based on this assumption that everybody they interact with is going to vote the same way they do. And right now, that's especially true, where the people who are saying vote, what they mean is, join me in voting Donald Trumpsfeld out of office. Join me in voting Donald Trumpsfeld out of orifice. You know, that's what those people are communicating, whereas if you were to tell them, well, actually, I'm voting for Donald Trumpsfeld. I'm, I'm voting for him. They'd be like, well, maybe, maybe don't vote. <laughs> see how democratic those people truly are and some people are incredibly mature where they would say okay that's your right I disagree with you but when I tell people to vote I mean everybody I want everybody to be engaged there are people who are mature in that way where they will encourage people to vote knowing full well that not everybody votes the same way they do but what a lot of people are communicating is be angry at the same things I'm angry about or shut up 
Vote the way I do or don't vote. Oh, your silence is deafening. And when people say that, oh, silence is violence. But if you speak up and it's not what they want to hear, well, they're going to tell you to be silent again. It's this double bind sort of thing. We're telling you to do one thing, but if you don't do it in the exact way that they want you to, they want you to shut up. And, uh, you know, a mature person who do exist, there are many mature people out there, you know, I'm not referring to them. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of people mean one specific thing when they say these things. And so it's just interesting to observe, and I do feel that what I would call vote signaling has intensified. It's a form of virtue signaling. I try to avoid that phrase. That phrase shouldn't be politicized because it applies to... It transcends politics, the idea of virtue signaling. Virtue isn't connected to politics alone, and so virtue signaling wouldn't be either, but that phrase has become wholly politicized. And it's one of those things conservatives will do where they learned about virtue signaling. So anytime somebody on the left expresses an opinion about something going on in the world, some sort of cause or concern, someone will dismiss that as virtue signaling. So basically you can never express any kind of opinion over some sort of larger human issue, some sort of humanitarian issue. And that's not good. But that said, you know, we know what virtue signaling is. We know when people are posturing. And that's, you know, more or less what people do when they broadcast the the fact that they are voting. I voted. You know, it's more or less what people are doing in most cases. Some people are just genuine fans of the democratic process. They just love participation of all kinds. But those people are fairly rare. You know, so when the average person just screams, vote, vote, what they're really doing is saying, vote the way I do or don't vote. Did you see that I voted? Do you see how I'm making a difference? You know, that's what a lot of people are communicating. And God bless them for that. You know, I have no desire to mock or criticize them, but you have to see things for what they are. It's like there are women out there who are like, you know, I I like a man who votes. (laughs) My last husband didn't vote. This time around, I'm looking for a man who votes. He votes. There probably are women who feel that way. I bet there are a lot of women I know who would be disgusted by the fact that I tend to not vote. That's gross. Like not bathing, even though to me it is like bathing, and maybe I'll vote this time around. I'm not saying anything about voting or not voting this time around, but the fact that I have a tendency to not vote would really turn somebody off. Oh, you're a non participant, but yeah, not too much more to say about that. It's just obviously something that's building up and it will continue to build up into early November as people want to let you know that they voted and they want to encourage you to vote. But how many of them truly want to encourage objective participation from anybody and everybody, regardless of who they vote for, is another question. But, um, you know, I'm thinking about... Well, here, this this is relevant. You know, I've been reading, this is sort of a handrail. I don't know how much people who listen to this show enjoy this sort of thing. But I do like to read these teachings of the Buddha now and again. And not that this is a Buddhist show, but Buddhism is a part of it. It's become a part of my life. It's, you know, it's just a part of the picture. And, you know, of course, there will be a day where I go off about the Bible. Because, you know, just so you know my schedule, just so you know my reading schedule... I usually read a chat. I mean, I always read a chapter of the Bible before I go to bed. And I generally read a Buddhist teaching, just a little passage in the morning. And of course, with the Bible, you know, reading the Old Testament again, because 
two years ago, it was exactly two years ago, I read the Bible from front to back around this time of year. It was, yeah, I would have been reading it right now. Just imagine me two years ago reading the Bible from front to back for the first time. It's true, though. I, I found a Bible in a one of those library boxes, one of those little lending libraries that was in my neighborhood. And I was just like, okay, now's the time for me to read the Bible from front to back. And it, it was really, you know, even though a lot of it didn't stick, it's not like I, it wasn't Bible study in the sense that I decided to memorize everybody's name or the genealogy of every character referenced in the Bible. It wasn't that I could actually probably have a conversation with some sort of devout Christian about everything that goes on. I did make it a point to study it, though, and I read it in a very short amount of time, and I spent blocks of time each day reading it, reading entire sections, you know, reading entire books within the Bible. And this time around, though, and I finished it on Halloween, which I thought was perfect. It was the day that I moved out of my last house, and it was Halloween, and I finishing the Bible in a completely empty shack, because my house was very much a cinder block shack. So just sitting on the floor, finishing the Bible in a house I had lived in for seven and a half years and gone through all kinds of ups and many more downs was an interesting little, it was good punctuation on a, a certain segment of my life for sure. And it was powerful. Reading the Bible was powerful. It had an impact on me. I was familiar with, you know, you're familiar with a good chunk of it. You've absorbed, chances are you've absorbed a lot of the Bible through osmosis, especially the beginning, especially Genesis. Everybody can tell you what goes on in Genesis, which tells me that a lot of people have started reading the Bible and not finished it. <laughs> the fact that everybody knows Genesis so well, like beyond the fact that it's highly memorable, Genesis is, is highly memorable. But it also tells me that a lot of people have only cracked open the Bible and started reading it and never gone all the way through, because most of what people know happens in like the first five pages, <laughs> and then you don't hear anybody talk about anything that happens after that. And by a large part of that is because so much of the Old Testament is dense. It's esoteric. You know, it's historical. I'm not trying to say that it's a perfect history but it's framed it's framed as a history and uh yeah it's it's very dense it's it's difficult it's very difficult i'm here i am reading it a second time but there's little breakthroughs you know there's little breakthroughs and there is insight i mean just thinking about when jethro visits moses his son-in-law and moses is you know running the tribe and he's stressed out, and, and this feels like one of those things, like, yeah, Moses, even Moses gets in line at Starbucks, and he gets really impatient, because he, he hasn't, because Daddy hasn't had his coffee yet this morning, and, and Daddy tells his kids, don't talk to Daddy unless he's had his coffee, and, and today in particular, he just doesn't want to wait in line at Starbucks, so you know, it's very easy to put things in those terms, but it's true, there's a, a part in the Old Testament where Moses is very stressed out. He's handling everybody's affairs, and his father-in-law, Jethro, visits him and teaches him about delegation and tells him not to micromanage. And what's funny about that is that's something that I've been to work classes. Like I, at jobs, I've had to go to these trainings where they, they teach you leadership skills and management skills. And a lot of it's obvious stuff, but sometimes they're able to, you know, break it down in the in terms that you can understand you know most epiphanies are things that would otherwise be obvious and things that you've heard and known but you haven't felt them and that's why I say an epiphany is something that is obvious but it hasn't been activated inside of you it it's something that you know but you don't actually feel and sometimes a certain person will have an ability to activate that feeling and when you feel that knowledge it's very Gnostic. When you feel that knowledge opposed to simply hearing it, it's why you can hear the same cliche over and over again, but a certain cliche can hit you at the exact right time, and it could even be a greeting card level cliche. It could even be something that simple, that obvious, something that you would just as well throw in the trash bin at any other point in your life, any other point in your life. 
and then it hits you at the right time and, and then you want to go tell people and then the problem with that the problem is with when an epiphany has been activated inside of you you then want to share it with other people and this show is very much that this show night school in particular is very much me wanting to share epiphanies that I feel knowledge that I feel but if someone isn't receptive if they're not in the right place for that you're just annoying you're just annoying I already know that because that was me my entire life you know so much of that is just me my entire life and part of it too is opening yourself a large part of it too is you know opening yourself to things that you otherwise wouldn't have considered and that is a skill that is something that you can develop something that you can practice Uh, but anyway it's the in the bible it happens you know where Jethro visits Moses and he's like you're micromanaging because basically what's going on is um, you know the the tribe every member of the tribe is lining up every day to consult with Moses so that he can arbitrate their disputes so that he can mediate and it's way too much for him it's way too much for one man to do and Jethro's like you should have the elders basically create a system here you know where people can consult with certain elders There's no reason for you to have to mediate every dispute and look what it's doing to you. And it's something that bosses go through. I've had bosses who are micromanagers and they just stress themselves out trying to worry about every little thing. I mean, I do that in my own life. I definitely do that in my own life where sometimes I'll take on too much or I'll try to control too much. And it's one of the things, I mean, of course people were aware of that when the Bible was written. Of course, people knew about micromanagement. They might not have called it micromanagement. They might not have called it it delegating. And that's what's so funny is like, if you do go to one of these leadership classes, these management classes, there'll be some guy who's like reading from a book and he's like, micromanagement, you need to learn to delegate. And a bunch of people are like, oh, it's funny how like self-help will bring up these things as if they're revolutionary. Like, here's a revolutionary idea. Don't micromanage. Delegate authority to other people. Let other people handle tasks. Learn to trust other people to handle tasks and mediate issues. Because you're just going to wear yourself out. But they, they're not going to reference Jethro advising Moses. Because it's not limited to that either. You know, it's not like the that thought was invented when Jethro visited Moses. But it is just funny how that stuff plays out in the secular world when it's in the Bible. The Bible did it. The Bible covered that. And the Bible, you know, is, is what produced the phrase, nothing new under the sun. And the Bible is a great example of that, where you'll often find ideas in the Bible that play out in the secular world, and whether or not the Bible influenced those, and they just decided to not credit the Bible, I don't know. A lot of these ideas are intuitive, and you will come upon them one way or another, regardless of your religious background, your spiritual background, whether you're a secular person who grew up in a godless household. It doesn't really make a difference. You know, a lot of these ideas will be discovered and shared one way or another, and that's the beauty of them, is that they don't have to be introduced to you in one context or another. Although, you know, sometimes they do have to be introduced in a certain context to activate that epiphany. And uh, just one last thought on the Bible. I've been reading through the book of Job lately, which to me is one of those highlights. That's something I, when I read it the first time, because it, it, you know, I'm not going to say, when I read the Bible all the way through the first time in a short amount of time, a lot of it felt like a chore. And I'm not ashamed to say that. But there were breakthrough moments. It's like any chore where you'll have a breakthrough, where you get into the rhythm of it, you get in the flow of it, or it's like something like playing guitar. You know, you'll just hammer away, your fingers hurt, you're just not in it, everything sounds like shit, everything's tuned, yet somehow it sounds like shit. And then you'll have a moment where it's just like, with your picking hand, you'll feel like you're just slicing through butter and it feels wonderful. So you'll have these breakthroughs, and the breakthroughs are what make 
practicing. The breakthroughs are what make the process satisfying. And it's the same thing with reading, obviously. And so something might be a chore. The Bi- Reading the Bible might be a chore, but you will have those breakthrough moments. And the book of Job, the entire book of Job was that for me. I wouldn't say I was on the fence. I was committed to reading the entire Bible. But when I got to the book of Job and started, it was so much, so much just poured into me. I was going to say poured out of me, but it was like something was being poured into me. Just the writing in particular. I'm not one of these people who likes to say the Bible is literature. Literature. Oh, you're talking about the Bible? Oh, that, that old piece of literature? You know, I don't think of it one way or another. I try not to categorize the Bible at all, and I try to approach it exactly what it is. It's the Bible. I don't try to add any... I don't, I don't try to code it in anything else. I just acknowledge that it's a very powerful book. And there is information in there. There are epiphanies waiting to be found, waiting to be activated in there. But I'm not afraid to say that a lot of it can be a chore, especially the Old Testament. But when I got to the book of Job, it was just like something was being, it's like molten lead being poured into me in the best possible way, where the writing is just, it's so incredibly powerful. And I've even contemplated reading the book of Job as an episode on this show. I don't know how long that would be, and I'm hesitant to actually do that. But I've thought about doing it because the writing is so powerful and so twisted in the best possible way. And just that story itself is such a powerful one as well. I don't really have a better word than powerful. You know, the guy, oh, you're talking about night school? The guy who calls everything powerful? The guy who says voting is just a a participation ribbon, but that everything in the Bible is powerful? I don't know. Who knows? It's quiet, that little voice. Uh, But, you know, reading the book of Job... It obviously has inspired a lot of people. A lot of people make reference to it. People that you otherwise wouldn't even realize are making reference to it. Um, It's it's just, it's such a, I just, I relate to it. I think I'll save Book of Job talk for another time. I'm still reading it. This is my second time through it, and I'm still reading it. So I think I'll save the Book of Job for another episode, because I don't completely have my thoughts, but... I would say that anybody who likes this show who hasn't read the book of Job, I would first recommend reading the entire Bible, knowing, like staying extra aware once you get to the book of Job, being extra, you know, making sure that you're extra attentive when you reach the book of Job. Not that you really even need me to tell you that, because once you get there, you'll just feel it. But I, I can say that that is a breakthrough moment, at least it was for me. But I want to get back to, you know, some of these ideas being universal. Like I was saying how, you know, the Bible actually has a passage that deals directly. This isn't metaphor. This isn't me making some kind of analogy. This isn't me comparing or coming up with, oh, it's a metaphor. What they're really talking about is micromanagement. While they don't use micromanagement, they're absolutely talking about micromanagement. When Jethro advises Moses to delegate, He is absolutely talking about micromanagement. And that's not going to be the only place that idea shows up, because it makes sense. On an intuitive human level, it makes sense. There's a reason why, as civilizations grow more complex, you do end up with more tears. You know, there's a reason why the king didn't manage all of the land, why he had lords, whatever else, you know. There's a reason why these systems develop. And there's a reason why the boss doesn't directly control everything. You know, delegation is something that humans figure out they just have to do. And obviously it was relevant in the Old Testament. So it's going to be relevant in many other places. And that's something I kind of want to get into because... I do have a Buddhist passage here, not to mix paints. Oh, he's talking about the Bible, now he's going to read a Buddhist passage. He's mixing too many paints here. It's turning into a kind of a gray-brown color. Uh, but a little Buddhist passage here, commitment to virtue. And if anyone with a pure heart undertakes a commitment to virtue, 
to refrain from taking life, from taking what is not given, from sexual immorality, from lying speech, and from taking strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. That constitutes a better sacrifice. That constitutes a sacrifice better than giving alms, better than giving shelter, and better than going for refuge. That's a very important passage because it is talking about self-control and how self-control with a pure heart is more virtuous than outwardly giving and outwardly. It's, it's more powerful than outward virtue. And it goes back to that. It's, it's a core self-help idea. So you can see where even secularized self-help takes on this principle, which is controlling yourself above all else. To refrain from taking life, from taking what is not given, from sexual immorality, from lying speech, and from taking strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. And that's interesting because it, it's, again, pretty universal, we have this tendency to focus on what we know and this sort of sex positive movement, which I don't think is as positive as people make it out to be. I think it actually takes a toll on people. But this sex positive idea that's come about, you know, started with sexual liberation in the 60s, but now as it's become this, it's become branded sex positivity. There's this idea that this is all in response to some sort of Christian oppression. Oh, it's only the Christians who advise you to control and limit your sexual conduct. And there's people who grew up in Christian households, so their association is that. Or just culturally, they're aware of Christianity more than most other religious beliefs. So they have a tendency to associate sexual self-control with this one specific religion, whereas it plays out, you know, it's syncretic. It plays out in all kinds of different belief systems, and it's particularly interesting that it plays out in Buddhism, because, you know, you see it in Islam, of course. You see it in Orthodox Judaism. You see it in other belief systems, but you see it in the, the main, the big shows, the big show. You see it in the big shows, the, the the trinity of mainstream religion throughout the world. You know, you see it with them, and obviously Judaism is closely connected to Christianity. Um, but uh, you know, you see a, a similar, at the very least, a guideline, if not some sort of strict rule against sexual immorality, but it's interesting when you see it in Eastern spirituality, because the way that Eastern spirituality was introduced to me as an American, and the sort of people who introduced it to me, not directly, but just through seeing them growing up in a place with a lot of Buddhist people. You know, I live in Western Washington, and there are a lot of people who are casual Buddhists, and a lot of them are lefty. A lot of them are sort of hippies, really. And uh, I like those people, I, you know, I really do. And I feel that I have something in common with them. But their interpretation of Buddhism, or the way that Buddhism was communicated to them, as people with a certain social and political belief system, you know, it, it becomes filtered through that, where they're not going to... It's not very austere. It is this sort of follow-your-bliss approach, which isn't attractive to me. You know, I feel like there's enough opportunity to follow your bliss in life as it is. So for me, the attraction of spirituality, and I don't feel that it's entirely a choice because I feel like these things do find you rather than you finding them. But for me, it's like I don't, while I'm not some austere, uh, you know, I'm not someone who feels the need to renounce all earthly pleasures. And so there's a level of austerity that I don't think is necessary in my own life. But I'm certainly averse and just naturally averse to, you know, any kind of, you know, hedonistic follow your bliss sort of approach, you know, to Eastern spirituality as well, because some people do take that approach. And I don't, I don't want to generalize or paint people with too broad of a brush, but I think we've all seen that. And not everybody's going to become a monk. Not everybody's going to eat gruel, shave their head and never have sex again. You know, there's a lot of people who aren't going to do that. 
myself included, you know, and, uh, but that said, I do lean more in that direction. I just, I, I feel that, I just feel that my life has led me more in that direction than in the other direction. And in particular, you know, I, I, it's very interesting to me that Buddhism continually points out sexual misconduct. Because that shows that some sort of sexual restraint, it's not some oppressive Western Christian idea. It's not just it's not just these different sects, no pun intended, sects to really say that T. It's not just the different sects of Christianity who believe in sexual restraint. And I do believe they go overboard. And anytime you go overboard, you end up encouraging the thing that you are opposed to. Because you shouldn't even be opposed to it. Because I guess I should say that. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not I'm not opposed to sexual misconduct as long as it's not criminal. As long as it doesn't actually hurt somebody. I'm not opposed to sexual misconduct. But I do believe a virtuous life does not include sexual misconduct in most cases. I do believe that a virtuous life does not include sexual moral immorality. And it's interesting that that was discovered within Buddhism as well as these other religious belief systems that parallel Buddhism in certain way in certain ways, but are not the same thing at all. You know, yeah, you can look at Jesus and say, he's got many Buddhist qualities. Maybe Jesus was a Buddhist. Or maybe he just tapped into some of the same universal epiphanies that Buddhists discovered, that Gautama Buddha discovered. You know, maybe he just tapped into the same source and that's what I personally believe. I personally believe that figures like that tapped into the same source. And it would be disingenuous to say, Jesus is actually a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, those sorts of thoughts are very limited. But to say that, okay, Jesus and Buddha tapped into the same source, which is why we can find parallels between them, even though the orthodoxy that followed them, and yeah, Buddhism certainly has its orthodoxy, as well as Christianity, but the orthodoxy that followed them might have been more obscured from the source, or the source might have been obscured from them, which is why it plays out in this entirely different way, or we at least see it as different. But there are a lot of basic parallels. You know, you think about, oh, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and the fact that a core Buddhist teaching is refrain from taking life. And it's obvious. I mean, that should be obvious. It should be obvious why taking a life. Because, I mean, it could be something as simple as early man killed somebody and thought, that didn't feel good. That didn't feel good. Oh, my God. Even the, the guy deserved it. The guy deserved it. He came into my cave and tried to grab my wife. He tried to grab my Starbucks. Even though Starbucks hasn't been invented yet, I had a Starbucks in my cave. I hadn't had my coffee yet. And another caveman came in and he tried to drink my coffee. So I clubbed him. He deserved it, but I don't feel, no, I don't feel good about it. You know, I think that's something that anybody can discover. I've certainly never had to go through that. In part because of laws. In part because of these teachings. The fact that our society is built on some of these values, you know, it's great because I haven't had to learn the hard way. And some people have. You know, when someone's in prison, even serial killers, even David Berkowitz being in prison, oh, I'm not the son of Sam no more. I'm the son of hope. Turns out I don't like killing people. I believe him. You know, it's we have a tendency to assume that anytime somebody goes to prison for murder and they repent, they're lying. They're trying to get some sort of, they're trying to get moved to a cushier cell, trying to get released. Oh, son of Sam, he uh, he's, he calls himself the son of hope and he he's repented. Not because he actually regrets killing, but because he, uh, he, he wants some sort of benefit. He wants to he wants parole. He wants a better cell. 
I don't know. I mean, depending on who it is, some people are manipulative. Obviously, people can manipulate the system. Obviously, people can manipulate our human virtue by being like, oh, I discovered killing is bad. It only took killing 10 people. Now I know killing is bad. You know, I'm, I'm more likely to question that person than I would somebody who kills one person and then realizes, oh, this, this, that was, I feel horrible. But the good thing about having a whole social framework and a, and a spiritual framework for these things is you don't have to go through that yourself. And there are some rules you do have to break sometimes to figure out why they're bad. Sometimes you do have to drink too much. Sometimes you do have to try drugs to figure out, oh, hey, there's a reason why people advise you not to indulge in that too much or at all. Sometimes you do have to break certain rules. Sometimes you do have to be a mean person to realize why being mean sucks. Like that old that sticker you used to see everywhere, mean people suck. Mean people suck. There used to be a sticker you could get at like Zoomies. <laughs> I got a skateboard and it says mean people suck. Which itself is kind of a mean statement. Isn't it kind of mean to say that all mean people suck? Kind of is. It is kind of mean. That's how you get sucked into the trap. You become a mean person by saying mean people suck. It's like when you gossip about somebody who is gossiping. You become the gossiper. There might be a a biblical passage about that. The Bible certainly covers gossip. Certainly deals in gossip. I just can't think of a particular passage about it. But yeah, mean people suck. That was a bumper sticker. It was a a t-shirt. You get a t-shirt that says mean people suck, which itself is a very aggressive, mean thing to say, even though your target is mean people. But sometimes you do have to be a mean person to realize that being mean does suck. It's not that mean people suck, but being mean doesn't make you feel good. And as long as you don't have some sort of pathology that destroys your self-awareness and destroys your ability to be honest with yourself, sometimes you'll discover that, oh, you know, I've been too critical. I've been too mean throughout my life, and I don't want to do that anymore. But some of these things are very universal. I mean, the little passage, the little Buddhist passage I just read, which, you know, refrain from lying speech, you know, you know when you lie that your world gets a little bit smaller. And the more you lie, the smaller it gets. Whereas when you tell the truth, your world expands. Your options expand. You exist in a much larger, more free world when you're not lying. And uh, so there are obvious reasons that you just feel. Like you, when you lie... You feel that you are doing something wrong, even if it's a soft lie. And that's why I've tried to avoid soft lies. That's why I've tried to avoid telling people, oh, I can't make it. I'm sick. Can't make it. I'm sick. I don't like to lie about that. And instead, if I can't make it to an event, obviously there are situations where you will have to tell a soft lie for someone's feelings or for your own survival. Like sometimes you do have to call into work and tell them you're sick when you're not. But it's good to refrain from that as much as possible because it forms a habit and it also doesn't feel good. I mean, I've called into jobs before and said I'm sick when I'm not, when I just needed a mental health day, as they call it. Uh, but uh, And I, I couldn't even enjoy my day off because I was thinking, oh, what if I go to the grocery store and my coworker is there and then they go back to work and say, oh, Eric called in sick, huh? I saw him look I saw him shopping for soup today. He didn't look so sick in the grocery store. You know, you you worry about that. I mean, I lived across the street from a coworker once and when I would call out sick, I was always worried that he was going to like see me doing things and report back to work or just know, even if he didn't snitch me out. It's like I felt like I had to stay inside with the shades drawn. I couldn't even enjoy my day. My world felt so small that I couldn't even leave the house. And all I did is take a random sick day from work, something that I I think I'm afforded. So if that felt that bad, you can imagine how it feels when you lie about much more important things. Uh, and, And that's just something you feel. So it's not surprising that Christianity, as well as Buddhism, as well as 
secular thought would all come to the same conclusion that lying is bad in the same way that they've come to the conclusion that sexuality should be controlled in some way and not necessarily controlled by some outside force because you can't force things on other people. You can't force people to do things. I think they have to understand on their own why sexual immorality is bad. And I'm not going to define that because this doesn't define it either. But, uh, you know, the five precepts here, you know, for the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from taking life. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from taking what is not given. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from sexual misconduct. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from false speech. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from intoxicants which lead to carelessness. You know, that's five, the five precepts, not entirely far off from the Ten Commandments. And if you live that way, you know why those are valuable. But sometimes you have to break the rules a little bit to understand their value. And there are some rules you should never break because the repercussions are far too severe. And not just in the sense that you will be punished, but because of the impact that it has on another person. You know, hopefully if you have any empathy at all, it will guide you away from doing certain things. Like, I've never cheated on a girlfriend I've had, and I'm not demonizing anybody who has, but I've known that that would not only be bad for me, but it'd be very bad for that person that I'm in a relationship with. And I, I'm i not going to go in, into detail about other things I've done, but, you know, I've never cheated on a girlfriend. I've never hit a girlfriend. This isn't me trying to seem virtuous, because I'm certainly imperfect in many other ways, and and I don't think those things are an example of perfection. Not doing something shitty isn't perfection, and you'll never achieve perfection anyway. But there are certain certain aspects of my life where my empathy, I guess, or just my sense of right and wrong has guided me away from doing certain things that I know are bad because of the impact that those things will have on another person. But sometimes, you know, especially with yourself, you do have to break certain rules. I had to drink way too much to figure out that I couldn't do that, that that was a problem for me. You know, there are other things too. You know, I lived a life when I was younger where I ate just awful food, and I gained a lot of weight, and I didn't feel good. And not feeling good impacted everything I did. Everything I did was filtered through a feeling of discomfort, an actual feeling of discomfort. Like when your clothes hug a certain part of your body in a certain way, you know, that'll impact everything you do. If the fabric on your t-shirt hugs your stomach in a way that isn't comfortable and even if you're not paying attention to it in a given moment, you're still feeling that, and that might impact the way you interact with the entire world, man. World, man. Um, are you a world, man? But yeah, anyway, my point is just that many of these virtues are universal, and many people know that. And so you just have to... I don't know. One of the reasons why it's great that there are different religions, there are different spiritual practices, is that one of them might activate that epiphany in you more than the other. And some of it might be aesthetic. Some of it might be on your quest for identity. You're looking for something and you were drawn to the, oh, I like the thing where they wear robes and beads and sit on pillars. You just like that. And that drew you into Buddhism or Hinduism. And then you heard an idea presented in that context that activated something for you. But it might be Christianity as well. It certainly happens with Christianity. It certainly happens with Islam. Asatru. I I just didn't understand things until I heard this story about Odin. Wotan. You don't hear people talk about that too much. It's funny how Norse mythology has very much become entertainment, more so than other spiritual beliefs, more so than other mythologies even, where a lot of the way that Norse mythology is presented is pure entertainment, and not just because Thor is a Marvel character. I read some book, a friend had me borrow some book where a popular author rewrote the basic Norse mythology stories 
And it was just funny because it's presented as pure entertainment. You don't hear about people who identify with Norse mythology on a deeper spiritual level, on a moral level. And what's funny about Norse mythology is there are some questionable ethics. The good gods, the good uh, deities, they do some deceptive and shitty things, and not just Loki. Not just Loki, Odin, Thor, they play some tricks on the giants that aren't very kind. And it doesn't seem the giants really did much to provoke them. But that said, you know, my approach to to Norse mythology is a form of deity yoga, where I feel like those deities are almost like certain archetypes that you can choose to identify with when you need them. They have certain qualities that you can relate yourself to when you need a power-up or you need to complete a certain task, when you need to see the world a certain way. And I think there's a reason why Norse mythology is so filled with warriors and beautiful conflict. And that's sort of how I use it. So I, I, I feel that I... I utilize Norse mythology as a form of deity yoga, which a lot of people probably do without such flowery, obnoxious words. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is funny to me, though, how Norse mythology has basically been filtered into our current world as pure entertainment. And even when people claim to be Odinists, we're part of these Asatru groups. It does come across more like LARPing than devotion to a spiritual practice. Although I don't believe that's always the case. But I do I do see it with a lot of neo-paganism where it is very close to Renaissance Fair roleplay. And that's okay. We need them too. We need Renaissance role players too. I love Renaissance Fairs. I love the Middle Ages. But I don't see a lot of Odinism. I don't see a lot of Odinism that goes beyond this sort of entertainment level value of that looks cool. That looks cool. And maybe that's part of the role it plays because we need cool things. And I think it's cool too. And I don't expect everybody to be like, well, for me, it's more of a process of deity yoga. Where in certain situations where I'm feeling anxious, I reinterpret that as a form of electricity and when I detach my emotions from that feeling of anxiety it becomes a pure form of electricity that actually gives me more power and strength like Thor the god of thunder the god of storms the god of electricity you know I don't expect everybody to go through that equation or with Odin where it's like oh you know Odin has an incredible ability to become whatever it is he's doing and if Odin was waiting in line at Starbucks, if Odin was a, a if, if, if the only job Odin could get was customer service answering the phones, he would wholly become that salesman. Because Odin has the ability to, to wholly invest himself in whatever role he is playing. And he might appear to you as an old man. He might appear to you as this or that, and you might not even know he is the central God. But that's how good he is. That's how good he is. He, be- he wholly becomes whatever it is he's doing, whatever role he's playing. And you can do that too. It's a form of deity yoga. When you're answering the phones at, at uh, the call center... And you say, you know what, right now I'm going to wholly become the best customer sales representative. I'm not going to begrudgingly do this. I'm going to be this. I'm going to harmonize. I'm going to wholly become the best customer sales representative this company's ever had. What you're really doing is you're, you're practicing a form of deity yoga, yogurt, deity yogurt, where you... Become Odin, or you behave like Odin. Oh, yeah, anyway. That's my approach to Norse mythology. As someone with Norse heritage, I do 
I do filter it through some form of deity yoga, and it's not something I actively do all the time. Not something I... Because, I mean, that's the thing about all this stuff is this isn't stuff that you need to constantly remind yourself of if it becomes part of your practice. It's sort of the weird catch-22 of having a discipline or having a practice is that you practice it and so in practicing it you think about it you're conscious of it but yet you're embedding it in your subconscious so that when you are living your life you're not having to think about these things and you can see where some of these precepts where these commandments have done the same thing for you where you don't have to go out in the world and think i'm not gonna kill today oh it's a beautiful day i'm not gonna kill i ain't gonna kill you know you don't you don't have to wake up and think that like a freak. I'm not going to kill today. I'm not going to behave in sexually immoral behavior today. I'm not going to lie today. (laughs) It's a beautiful day. I'm not going to lie. You know, you don't have to think that every day. You don't have to be conscious of it. And if you were well socialized as a kid, you're not, you know, your parents are going to teach you that. I mean, some parents teach their kids to lie and steal, but, uh, or they at least don't discourage it enough. But with most well-socialized people, they understand that you don't do those things. You don't need to do those things. Uh, Not only do you not need to, you actually need to not do those things. If you're going to be a part of the whole, if you're going to be a part of this whole process, this whole system that you were born into, that is you, and that you you are it as well, you know, that's, it becomes a part of your subconscious where you're not having to make all of these decisions all the time. Because I know that the way I talk about this stuff probably sounds exhausting to somebody who doesn't think about these things. And they're just like, why not just live your life? You're overthinking everything. Oh, my God. You know, there's, there's people who probably hear this kind of talk and it's just obnoxious. It's overwrought. And it is those things. It is both of those things. But it's something that you can just do as you live your life. And there are far more subtle examples than killing and lying and stealing and and sexual immorality, sexual misconduct, which I'm not defining. I'm not going to define what sexual immorality and sexual misconduct is, although you will find there are certain... There is universal agreement in different parts of the world throughout history as to what those things are. And that doesn't mean people haven't broken those rules. Even the people who preach those rules doesn't mean those people are are definitely prone to breaking those rules. We've seen that. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, where was I going with this? Yeah, no, I mean, these are things that once they're a part of your subconscious, and I don't want to be too attached to the word subconscious because it might just be, the surface, your subconscious might just be the surface of your soul. I'm not going to say that your soul is your subconscious. But uh, I, I think, it, you know, it touches your soul, maybe. Your subconscious? Oh, you mean the thing that touches your soul? But no, I think there is something to that, though. I think that you embed this stuff within you. And that way you orient your life in a certain way that doesn't violate some of these precepts some of these guidelines, these rules. And you may gravitate, you know, in the same way that you can embed certain ideas into your subconscious that you then gravitate toward, things that are healthy, things that are good, success, whatever that is to you, whatever success is to you, whatever a successful life is, you can embed that idea into your subconscious so that you then orient yourself toward it to where you're behaving in ways in life that lead you at least closer to that than you would be otherwise without you having to even think about it, without you even having to go through some sort of choose-your-own-adventure. It's it's like every step of your life won't be some choose-your-adventure novel where you're like, okay, I have four options, kill, lie, steal, or do none of those things. It's like you're not going to be going through life in a choose-your-own-adventure novel because so many of these things will just be a part of you and you won't be having to make decisions constantly because the reality is when you don't embed virtue into your subconscious you do end up having to make a lot more decisions and that is exhausting and you do wear yourself down 
you do become weaker. You do become more predisposed to doing things that you know are wrong. Because decisions are exhausting. Even having to make one decision on a given day can wear you out. And so minimizing the number of decisions you have to make is going to allow your subconscious to do more of the work. And it does so easily. To your subconscious, it's not even work. It's just what it does. To your subconscious, it ain't even work. It's pleasure. It's not even pleasure either. It's just what it does. And uh, you can think about it later, but in the moment, it turns out you won't even have to think about it. You'll just do it. And I don't believe you have to sit there like they tell you in some self-help manual and look in the mirror and say, my goals are this, this, and this. My goal is in the next five years, my goal is to be married, two kids, a career in, a career in techno communication that I love. You know, I don't think you have to sit there and think that. Although successful people do do that, they do do that. They do embed their goals into their subconscious and then orient themselves toward those goals. But I don't believe you have to necessarily do that. But you can find other ways to do it. By consuming subject matter that, for one, doesn't drag you down. You know, by reading, by having conversations, but they're, they're just you're, the stuff that comes into you, the input. You can regulate your input, and that can help you do that as well. It's not just sitting there looking in the mirror saying, I'm a big, strong woman, and I'm going to have my own apartment in five years, and I'm going to pay the bills without a man. You know, it's like you don't have to sit there and do that, although, like I said, I'm not even I'm not making fun of someone who does that because it does work for some people. But for me, I think I would feel weaker if I looked in the mirror and just repeated my goals over and over again. I think I would feel weaker, personally. It's a little too direct. But some people, that works. And their life is a testament to that, and they will tell you that. You'll come across very successful people. And successful, I mean that in a broad definition, where they're people who are happy with their lives and they might have material success. They might have the family they want. They might have just bought a new jet ski, whatever it is. And uh, it worked for them. And they're not lying when they tell you that. They're not lying when they tell you they came up with a plan and a set of goals. So, you know, you should listen to them, but you don't have to necessarily do exactly what they did because I feel that all of the input in your life has this sort of effect. And it's not wrong to remind yourself of certain virtues, especially if they parallel other religions, other moral frameworks, especially if they parallel each other. That's when you have to say, hey, there's something to this. I saw something interesting online a little while back where someone was saying how you'll see two religions compared side by side and that causes you to dismiss them. You're like, oh, look, (laughs) these two religions are really similar. That must mean they're both bullshit. That just shows you that religion's all bullshit. It's all manufactured because these two religions compared side to side are so similar. And then you compare them to 10 other religions and find the parallels between those. And then you go, Oh yeah, all all 12 of these religions are so s- similar. And you start to do a double take. And then you start to say, "Hey, maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is something universal inside of this." And if you can avoid getting lost in the details and the minutia, you start to say, "Hey, I thought these two religions side by side kind of made each other seem less reputable, but when I see 12 of these side by side, especially when they came about during different times in different cultures with minimal known cross-pollination, maybe there is something to this. And you can use those as input. doesn't mean you have to suddenly 
become a spiritual person, and I'm very self-conscious when I talk about this stuff. I'm very self-conscious to the point where I'm hesitant to even say it at all. But that is a form of input. And it can activate something inside of you. And it will feel like something that you've always known. But once you start feeling that thing that you've always known, it becomes something else entirely. And it brings you much closer to some form of virtue. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me.